You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your host, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 130.1. Long-time listeners will know that means that we are down to two hosts today. Uh, so on the other line, I am joined this fine afternoon by Dr. Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how are you doing? I'm good, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing well, but neither of us, I think, is doing as well as David Grubbs. Dr. David Grubbs, who defended his dissertation at the University of Georgia yesterday. Uh, and so when this drops, David Grubbs will have been a Ph.D. for six days. So congratulations, David. And he'll be joining us next week for our next run of episodes, which she, which we shall discuss here in a bit. Six, but, six days is just enough time for him to start wondering if they should have given it to him, right? <laughs> <laughs> You got to be kidding me. When I hit the sidewalk outside the building, I started wondering. So I, (laughs) uh, Michael, we have a couple of emails today. So would you like to take the one from Jordan Poss? Sure. Uh, it says, dear Christian humanists, thanks again for such a great show. I was thrilled when this week's dedicated CS Lewis episode popped up on my phone. It didn't disappoint. Grubbs referred to Lewis near the end of the episode as a gateway drug for Christian humanists, a brief story by way of total agreement. I was raised in fundamentalist schools from kindergarten through high school and went to a fundamentalist college for my undergraduate training. While there, I abandoned fundamentalism, but was uncomfortable with the evangelical label as an alternative, and even toyed with a detached sort of deism for a while. I had left my background behind for many of the same reasons Lewis abandoned his nominal Christianity in school. Nothing encourages apostasy like mandatory spirituality. It was while I was at college that I finally got around to reading C.S. Lewis. I discovered and read Dante on my own in high school. And with Lewis, these were the only two Christian writers I'd ever read who had something of substance to say and who said it beautifully. Enter Francis Schaeffer. Schaefer vied with Lewis for the most popular Christian writer on campus, and I heard him recommended many times. I finally got around to reading him after my graduation, but before I went on to graduate school at Clemson. I read, How Should We Then Live? As a history major and a fan of the Longue Dorée, I was interested to see a sweeping history of the Christian West from this perspective. I know Schaefer doesn't at all belong to the movement, but the book reminded me nothing so much as the fundamentalist perspective I'd left behind. A clear-cut Manichaean story of poisonous atheists, and perhaps worse, Catholics, versus the upright, quote, biblical Christians, unquote, who were in no uncertain terms modern evangelicals and who somehow, somehow included the apocrypha quoting St. Augustine. Funny how it works, <laughs> isn't it? Ever since, Schaefer, probably unjustly, has stood in my mind for intellectual superficiality, only concerned enough to determine whether a given cultural artifact deserves condemnation or tolerance. 
Lewis, on the other hand, modeled a serious Christian scholar with deep, sympathetic understanding of his subject and an eagerness to share his joy in learning. He showed me it was possible to be a real and intellectually rigorous scholar, love one's subjects, and still love God. My brief story has gone on longer than I intended. Suffice it to say that Grubbs nailed it. After God in his grace and Dante, who really deserves to be called my gateway drug, I owe my faith and my livelihood to Lewis and others like him. Thanks for the great discussion. By the way, a big welcome back to Grubbs. Great to have him back on the show, though I certainly enjoyed and will miss Danny. And hoping I don't, don't sound too mean-spirited, if y'all ever do want to wail on Schaefer's book for an hour, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> he also says, because nice. there's a PS here, a postscript. Thanks for, thanks for pointing toward Nathan's review of Schaefer's book on the blog. I have read a couple of Schaefer's other works. A Christian Manifesto is probably worthwhile only as an artifact of the 80s era of religious right. He is there, and he is not silent. I read a few months after How Should We Then Live, and even gave it a glowing Amazon review, but remember nothing of it but gratuitous jabs at Dante and Aquinas. Caveat oh, watch it now. Watch it now. Well, you know, Schaefer does hate Aquinas <laughs> because Aquinas doesn't believe the mind is fallen. Isn't that the uh, the basic idea? Right, which I – oh, gosh. That's not what I get from Aquinas, but that's another conversation for another episode. Thanks for writing in, Jordan. We, by the way, despite my fears, we have not yet received a single uh, email telling us that we're pagans for disliking Francis Schaefer. Although we're going to poke at the hornet's nest one more time, just see if we can chase any out. <laughs> oh, by the way, that reminds me while we're on it. I think the Christian Feminist podcast, which has been on a bit of a hiatus for a couple of reasons, but we'll be back soon enough. I think they're going to be doing an episode on Frankie Schaefer's book, Sex, Mom, and God, soon enough. Oh, fascinating. So, so, okay. Um, just to, just to yeah, plug I, for I've our seen the chatter that they're doing a, an episode on a Rachel Held Evans' book. Yeah, they're recording that one soon. And then they're doing one on Mark Driscoll's book on sex. Okay. Which, you know, should be disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually own the Evans book. I I won it in a contest, but I haven't had time yet to read it, so I'll look forward to hearing that one. As as listeners, you should always look forward to and download and listen to the Christian Feminist Podcast. Yeah, so if if you've been wondering where they are, you know, life has intervened. Uh, right. They they will be back soon. I think, in fact, I am mixing that show tomorrow. So by the time oh, okay. this show is up, that one should be up. Anyway, Very good. Very all good. of this is to thank Jordan Poss for writing in and and, uh, and sharing his story about Schaefer with us. We have another yeah. we have another email, Nathan. Yes, from Josh Nisley. He says, "Thanks for the Lewis episode. Good stuff. I enjoyed his novel Till We Have Faces when I read it several years ago, but felt like I would need to study a lot more classical mythology to access it fully." Uh, if any of you have read the book, I'd love to hear you discuss it a bit. Uh, that's another one that's on my I should read that list. I read it in high school. All right. And, uh... Now, and, and <laughs> I especially should read it because I have uh, read and actually wrote a paper in seminary on uh, Apuleius's book, The Golden Ass, which, of course, is the the source for the Okra, the uh, Eros and Psyche. There. Yes, yes, I, Cupid and Psyche in, in Apuleius, but yes, precisely. Uh, so, Josh, I, I apologize. I have not read that one. I intend to someday. Just admit, Nathan, that the only reason you brought that up is because you wanted to say the word ass on this podcast. It's in the Bible, King it, James. It's just like it's just like when you're a kid <laughs> and they sing, what child is this, uh, at, at your church. You always hope they sing the second verse just so you can say ass in church. <laughs> I... 
I actually hadn't thought of that for some time, Michael, but thank you for that good memory. At the risk of <laughs> – see, I'm on spring break, so I'm real loose today. But uh, at the at the risk of losing our clean rating on iTunes, I have an embarrassing story. Uh-oh. Um, my, my church youth group used to go around and we would sing at other churches. So we were at this church in – oh, somewhere in South Carolina mm-hmm. uh, once. And we were sitting up in the choir loft during the sermon. And and uh, the the the, pre- the preacher was reading from the book of Genesis. It must have been the King James version, because he said that Abraham sat on his ass and rode into town. <laughs> and uh, true, true to form, because you know, if you think I have no self control at thirty one, uh, I really had no self control at thirteen. Uh, I erupted in the choir loft and and uh, could not stop laughing the entire forty five minute. Oh, that's sermon. great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so. I don't know how how relevant that is, but uh, like I said, I'm on spring break and I'm a little loose. But it was fun. It was fun. Anyway, sorry, Josh. I I don't have a whole lot of help for you until we have faces. Right. So when Grubbs comes back, he may or may not comment on that. But today, uh, we're talking about one of my favorite cultural critics. Uh, I first read his book, or I read his first, no. I first encountered him in book form. There we go. Uh, as a college senior, uh, his book, The End of Education, really got me thinking about the fact that metaphors really govern the way that we think generally, and especially about big, complex, important questions. Most recently, I taught his book, Building a Bridge to the 18th Century, uh, as part of a composition course, largely because it presents one of the most lucid arguments for the a formal essay that I'm aware of. Uh, but his book that we're going to talk about today is one that a lot more people have read. Certainly a lot more people are aware of. The author is Neil Postman. The book is amusing ourselves to death. Uh, so Michael, both in the forward of this book and in the final chapter of amusing ourselves to death, uh, you get a famous pairing of novels, probably the one that Neil Postman is best known for. Um, he gives us this pair of novels to think about two visions about what could go wrong in the future as Postman imagines it from the mid eighties forward. What are these two novels and why does he begin and end the book with these two images? Well, the two novels are two that are often paired because they have a great deal in common. Um, George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's brave new world. And they are similar enough to be instructive in their differences, right? Because they're both these futuristic dystopias where, well, the things that happen in dystopias happen. But the difference between them is that in 1984, you get a uh, power coming down from the top and forcibly restraining people. Um, Very famously in 1984, that's what happens. He is much more interested in Brave New World because there is no, or there is much less of a, sinister government presence and what you have instead is the people in oh i cannot remember the name of the the name of the society in brave new world but the people in that society more or less restraining themselves by their addiction to various uh substances most most famously this drug called soma Mm -hmm. um and, and that just kind of keeps them in line and allows the people who profit from their being kept in line to profit. And so he, he's interested in these two novels, in particular Brave New World, because he sees this as what's happening with modern society, with modern entertainment-based society, in particular with television, uh, 
which which he he saw as a way for people to kind of numb themselves against intellectual conversation and thought and then make themselves easy pickings for uh, anyone who would profit off them. Right, right. And I mean, Brave New World is also especially telling because unlike 1984, where sexuality is very, very tightly restricted, uh, Brave New World is characterized by its license, right? Uh, I often tell people it's the first pornographic book I read as a teenager uh, because, I mean, it is just a a society in which uh, promiscuity is almost unintelligible because there is no alternative. And, you know, the great act of defiance is not to have a love affair like uh, Winston Smith has with Gloria. Julia. uh, Julia, son of a gun. You're right, you're right. Uh, but rather uh, for Joe the Savage actually to maintain a long-term love affair, although unrequited, uh, with – and now I can't remember that character's name. I'm, I'm not confident enough. Neither can I. Uh, I haven't read Brave New World since high school either. Yeah. But uh, – so, I mean, I, I think that, you know, especially in the 80s, um, it becomes it, – it really does become a telling allegory for what Postman sees going on around him. I mean, I, and I'm trying to think, I mean, are, are there other aspects of either of those books? I mean, um, one of the things, of course, you know, is that Joe, well, both of those books have sort of encounters with Shakespeare, right? The title of Brave New World is from a speech from The Tempest. And then in 1984, famously, one of the characters tries to translate Shakespeare into new speak and ends up getting disappeared for it. Uh, but all sorts of connections between those two books. You're right. So and, and I think you, I think it was you who pointed it out in the Orwell episode we did on um, politics in the English language that there was some yeah. sort of material connection between Orwell and Huxley too. Although now I can't remember what it is. Oh yes, indeed. I, yeah, I remember. I, yeah, you just reminded me of that. That uh, Huxley was actually a tutor when uh, Orwell was in, I believe, boarding school. Although now I have to go back and listen to that episode so I can remember it. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, well, like I said, I mean, this is a, this is definitely a book that is coming out of the mid 1980s. So Michael, what's going on in 1984 and here, I mean the year, not the book, uh, that Postman is responding to and amusing ourselves to death. And how do the intersections of print and radio and television give shape to the particular world that he describes? I think the biggest thing that's happening and, and, you know, the early eighties are a time of, an awful lot of cultural change that we sometimes forget about in the glossy neon version of the eighties we present ourselves with sometimes. But mm. I think one of the, the biggest things is the introduction of MTV, which to us today is more or less a reality television network, but at the time must have <laughs> seemed almost apocalyptic Yeah. to, to a guy like Postman because it is a, it is a network devoted to what amounts to advertisements, right? Music videos are just advertisements for albums in, 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 in some right. sense. I mean, and, and, you know, they're an art form in, in some of them anyway. But you get a, a series of very flashy, very imagistic three to four minute commercials, essentially, uh, that America's teenagers, if you believe the story, uh, plop themselves in front of for hours at a time. So I, I think mm-hmm. MTV is is one of the, the the biggest things that's happening, and along with that, you get a general move toward cable television. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So in the 50s to the 70s, you really only had a few choices for what to watch on TV. You had ABC, NBC, and CBS. Um, I'm not sure when PBS must have come about by the 70s because I know it existed then. But you had right because Sesame Street started in the late 60s. Right. So and we'll get to that as well. But you, so you get at most four networks, right? But by the time the 80s come around, you're starting to get more and more cable networks aimed at niche audiences. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that disturbed him about that was not so much the glossy, meaningless stuff on cable. It, it, it's the idea that some of these cable networks were attempting to educate people, and that really frightened him. And I think we'll get to exactly. that in a little while. Yeah. But, but so, so cable's happening. The other thing that's mm-hmm. happening is the home computer is starting to be developed for the first time. Um, I, I don't know when most people got them. I know that we got one in 1987 or 88, so a few years after this, which must have meant that other people already had one by the time <laughs> uh, by the time Postman's writing, because my family's never been early adopters. Right. Uh, and with that, you also get the advent of arcades, probably about five to ten years before Postman is writing, and home video game systems uh, right around the time he's writing. Um, so, uh, you know, Atari would have made a home system by 1984. And and mm-hmm. while I don't remember him talking in detail about video games in, uh, in Amusing Ourselves to Death, you can certainly see how that would fit into his overall cultural theory on, uh, on, on what's happening with entertainment. Because in some ways, video games are like everything he hates about television plus a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, we're going to talk about both of these spheres of influence uh, in more detail later. But, I mean, two of the big things that he wants to pick up on are the fact that, yeah, television has pretensions fairly early on of becoming an educational medium. Uh, in other words, something you know through which America will receive its formation. It also purports fairly early on to take its place alongside the newspaper – as a vehicle for political discourse. Right. And, and you know, it's it's the 1980s when the 24-hour news network is invented. Yeah. Not 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 by 1984, but Postman must have seen it on the horizon, given, given his well-publicized hatred for television news. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And, I mean, you know, uh, again, I, I didn't do this research before the show. One of our listeners, you know, might be able to write in and tell us this, but, I mean, I've, I've got to think of the advent of Crossfire on CNN as something that, probably would have melted his brain. <laughs> but again, we'll talk about that a little bit later. I'm jumping my own gun here, Michael. I I, I get I get down on you for doing that. Now I'm doing it to myself here. That's okay. But these these two person episodes kind of wander a little bit more than the uh the ones with three of us. They do, they do. Now one interesting thing, uh and again, I mean we're kind of wandering in and out here, uh, is that a sort of underreported uh, media explosion there in the early 80s was also FM radio. Uh, and that's something that's always fascinated me because, I mean, when Postman is writing this book, not only do you have cable television, not only do you have uh, computers, uh, but you also have this proliferation of radio programming to where, you know, before when there used to be maybe three AM radio stations that you could hear most of the day, uh, all of a sudden, the FM spectrum blows up largely because of uh, Reagan era legislation. And all of a sudden, you know, pop music becomes something that uh, 
isn't pop music anymore. Like you were saying before, Michael, it's niche entertainment. So, you know, the eighties are really when you get, you know, uh, oldie stations versus rock and roll stations versus, uh, you know, R and B stations versus so on and so forth. So it's, it's weird to think of that as being such a, I didn't know that, that it, it's such a recent. Oh phenomenon. yeah. Yeah. Because, because I mean, now it appears that people listening to pop music on the radio is going to be a historical flash in the pan. It's going yeah, to be something yeah. that happened for 25 years and then it's over. Right. Right. And and I want to be clear that, I mean, in the sixties and seventies, there was pop music. But it genuinely, it genuinely was popular music. In other words, the populace, by and large, listened to the same sorts of things on AM radio. Uh, whereas, you know, with the explosion of FM, you could, if you wanted to, listen to the country music station as opposed to the rock and roll station. Well, and the other thing is, Postman digs the radio, right? right? I mean, yeah. he, he thinks the radio is really a more or less ideal method of getting intellectual discourse across. He really likes the radio. Like given his hatred for television, it may surprise (laughs) people to learn how much he likes the radio, but he says the radio is completely held captive by pop music and thus is worse than useless. Right. Right. And and God only knows what he would think of what happened or what he thought, because he lived long enough to see it happen to AM radio in the nineties when it became on the one hand, a bunch of shock jocks. And on the other hand, a bunch of, What's a charitable way of talking about the other group of people? Right wing partisan radio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so is that neutral enough? Uh, yeah, uh, because I, I think I think we can all agree Rush Limbaugh is not having intelligent political discourse. He's doing something else, right? And and it's something that I can't I can't help but think that Postman would look at and say that is not radio at its best. Right. And in fact, in his later 1999 book, uh, Building a Bridge to the 18th Century, he actually does address that directly. So uh, your your hunch is right that he saw that, he didn't like it, and he wrote about it. We, we should do an episode like that, about that, because I, um, when I was a kid, I didn't listen to music. I only listened to AM radio, and this was the 80s. So it was the time before before it really became partisan in the way we were just talking about. And so it, uh-huh. it, I, I mourn the state of affairs on terrestrial radio nowadays because, you know, my, my, my childhood was spent listening to talk shows, essentially. And, yeah. and more, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to say it was intellectual talk shows, but it was not ugly. Right, right. The other thing that was happening in the early 80s uh-huh. is that the print magazine was remaking itself in the image of television. Yes. So I just looked this up. USA Today, which if you're not familiar with it, is a essentially a television series as a newspaper. Right? <laughs> it's a bunch of well put. It, it's a bunch of very bright art, uh, articles with charts and things like that, with without a whole lot of content. It's also the number one newspaper in the country. Mm-hmm. It is first published in late 1982. So oh, fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So 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 you look at that and you see television remaking itself as a as a print magazine or a print newspaper. And mm-hmm. um, I, I haven't done the research because why would I? But I suspect if you look <laughs> if you if you do some sort of history of the American periodical, you're going to, you're going to see a lot of that happening in the early eighties, things getting, Uh things getting glossier and losing a good bit of their intellectual rigor. Right. Well, I mean, we, we've kind of already shaded into this, but, uh, 
as far as the philosophical implications of this, he really points to a handful of big psychological and philosophical changes uh, as print gives way to television as the primary vehicle by which Americans get their daily doses of news and other information. Uh, what are some of those big changes, big shifts? Well, Postman generally follows, and I always say his name wrong, I always call him Marshall McLaren because of Brian McLaren, but it's Marshall <laughs> McLuhan, who famously yes. says the, the medium is the message. And, and Postman points out, well, he agrees with that, the medium is the message, but he's going to change it to the medium is the metaphor. And I'm glad you brought up earlier this 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 notion that, that metaphors kind of determine what we're able to think because that's exactly what he thinks about media. Mm-hmm. So the idea is the medium through which you receive something is going to determine the limits of the way you're able to think about it. And so print, as it, especially print as it existed in the American colonies in the 18th century, which he says is the, the printiest culture in the history of humanity, <laughs> right? It's, it's, the, it's the culture in which print paid, played the biggest social role and the biggest intellectual role. Right, where a big hunk of the population, for instance, reads the Federalist Papers. Right, which is almost unbelievable today, right? Yeah. Or even you compare it to a more oral society. So he talk, he spends a great deal of time, and I know we're going to get to this in a minute, but talking about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which you read mm-hmm. about it, and you realize that Lincoln and Douglas debated for three hours, and people sat there and listened and paid attention. Right, because and then the, they printed the whole transcript in the newspaper and people read it. Right, so when we move from those sorts of societies that are used to being able to follow long-form arguments, either in print or orally, and, and you know, again, radio could do this as well, um, you move to a, a society where they you get most of your information through the television. Uh, well, I mean, think about how television works, right? Television, on, on the one hand... Um, well, this is what I tell my students, and I, I forget where I got this. I didn't make this up, but I got it from somewhere. We like to think of ourselves as the person the television is trying to attract, right? The, the television is making television shows to get us to watch. Thus, we are the clients, right? In mm-hmm. fact, we are the bait because, <laughs> because the clients for television are the people who pay for the commercials, Right, and what what they want is to glue us to the television long enough to watch the commercials. So the the programs could be good or bad; it doesn't really matter as long as people come to them. So so we're we're uh, we're essentially bait. We're we're the we're the ones who are being sold. We're the product in a real sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so when you when you have that, you have you have a group of people who don't really. It doesn't really matter if you're learning anything. It doesn't matter if you're being enriched. It doesn't matter if if uh, the level of discourse in this country is rising through television, what matters is that you watch enough of it in order to buy soap or cereal or whatever else it is they're selling, pharmaceuticals nowadays, although not in 1984. Mm-hmm. That's going right. to limit the quality of the discourse that's happening on television right there, especially when you realize that at most you're going to get seven or eight minutes at a time, and then you're going to cut to a series of very fast commercials, 30 seconds, maybe a minute at the outside, but on the whole, 15 to 30 seconds um, commercials for three minutes or so, right? Mm-hmm. So, so on the one that, that's going to limit the amount of time you can even pay attention. On the other hand, even within the seven minutes of television, I think um, I think Postman points this out in the book. 
the average shot, even in 1984, was like three or four seconds. So you're right. getting just constant cuts, and, and it, it's destroying your attention span. And how on earth are you going to be able to follow a Lincoln-Douglas-style debate if what you're used to is having your attention span cut off every three seconds? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so television is not a good medium for expressing complex issues because – well, it's just not because of the very way it's set up. Right, right. And I mean, one of the things that he really focuses in on is that, you know, a sense that what comes before informs what comes after and what comes now is going to set up what is to come really kind of disappears when your basic segment of time is, as you said, Michael, I mean, not uh, the day or even the hour, but the segment. Uh, and, you know, the segment might be as short as, you know, three or four seconds, like you said. Uh, and, you know, if, if someone has the audacity to stay on a shot for a minute and a half, it becomes a revolutionary thing. Yeah, well, I, I think that show True Detective on um, HBO had a very long cut in one of their episodes. That we, don't, we don't have HBO, so I haven't seen it yet. But a very long cut, and the Internet wouldn't shut up about it for almost a week. <laughs> that, that, that They made you pay attention to something for three minutes. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I'm I'm just, you know, trying to think back to our uh, Alfred Hitchcock episode. I mean, it, it draws to mind, I mean, just how radically different that is from something like Rope. Uh, something like the rear rear window, where, I mean, you really are in a very straightforward sense looking at the same thing for, as I remember it, very long stretches. Well, I thought you were going with Rope, which is, which is, uh, that movie is composed of the longest number of shots, uh, lo- the longest period shots you were able to have at that point. I think it's seven minutes. And, oh, okay. And the whole movie is seven minutes shot after seven minutes shot without any Oh, I'll be, I didn't even know about that, so. All right, all right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, what Postman laments here uh, is really a loss of narrative, uh, as I read him. Uh, you know, he says that, you know, in an oral culture, you had the idea that, you know, we told our life stories uh, as performances that had beginnings and middles and ends. In a print culture, we make sense of our world in essays, which have, you know, points that are linked together with transition phrases and things that you remember from freshman comp. But in the television age, the very point is to keep you disoriented enough that you remain psychologically vulnerable to the toothpaste commercial. Right. And again, I got a point. We talked about this in the metamodernism episode, but I got a point to David Foster Wallace's essay, E, uh, e Unibus Plurum, where he mm-hmm. talks about the effects watching television has on a person and watching it for, you know, five to six hours a day, like a lot of people did and do. Although, I mean, as we're going to talk about later, now it's even weirder because of the internet. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and, Think about what happens. Wallace Wallace is inclined to blame is not the right word because he he doesn't really think it's something blameworthy, but chalk up the entire tenor of postmodern literature to the fact that everybody who writes it spent their entire childhood watching television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's a a bad theory about at least some of the influence there. <laughs> Well, Michael, I want to zoom in a little bit, if you will, to use a television term. Uh, One of Postman's big concerns in this book is the way that television transforms political discourse. Uh, And his favorite pair of politicians to compare are Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan. 
uh, in the four score years between those two Republican presidents. You know, I had to throw that in. Uh, what changes, as Postman argues, or what changes, as Postman argues, and how does he evaluate that change? Isn't it actually six score years? It probably is. I don't care. Four score years would be <laughs> 80 years. It's four score years between Reagan and Harry Truman, which might also be an interesting comparison. Fair enough. Fair enough. So let's say eight score. I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to let you get away with it. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, well, number one, it's funny to see someone who is beloved by conservatives like Postman uh, mm-hmm. attack somebody else who is beloved by conservatives like Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Although I can tell you which side of that I come down on. <laughs> one of the issues with Reagan is that Reagan is an actor, a, a, a mediocre actor, but an actor before he becomes governor of California, before he becomes president. And so Postman is very interested in the notion that politics itself has become a form of entertainment. And so if you think about the way television works, what are trying to get you to uh, stick around long enough to buy toothpaste, politics is doing something very similar. The the debates, the speeches, uh, the political campaign ads are there to keep you interested long enough so that you will pay attention and – Oh, I don't know what they want from you. Buy toothpaste for one thing, but probably also vote for their candidate. And it's a, it's a, it, it becomes a very similar um, process uh, for for Postman. And so this is this is one of his problems with Ronald Reagan. But another is just the general dumbing down of the discourse. And again, this happens um, this happens mainly for technological reasons. That it's it's just not possible to be Abraham Lincoln in the television age. He says right. He says Lincoln would never be able to be elected nowadays because he is too ugly. He's morose. His wife was a sociopath. I think he actually calls her a psychopath. Um, all these, all these things that we simply don't allow from our candidates anymore. I mean, for crying out loud, there was a big deal in 2008 because Barack Obama smoked cigarettes, which, which is as dumb a reason for not voting for someone as I've ever heard. Uh, frankly, you know, the, the cigarettes are at least a five minute break every now and then from your day. It gives you a chance to think, but, uh, this isn't an episode (laughs) about, about cigarettes. Um, right. So, so this is, this is politics in the, uh, this is politics in the electronic age. It's, it's a form of entertainment. It's a, it's essentially television expanded out to fill, fill this realm that was once an independent realm, once a realm, not exactly free of entertainment because the people who went to the Lincoln Douglas debates were also probably on some level seeking to be entertained mm-hmm. uh, but it was a different kind of entertainment it was an entertainment based on as you said earlier on narrative based on argument based on the idea that the things we hear today might make some difference instead now we have two types of people who follow politics people who are incredibly cynical about it all and people who believe anything told to them by their party mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. in some cases anything told to them by both parties both of which are a, a huge step down, I think, in Postman's eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, one of the things that, you know, is, is so interesting to me about this is that, well, I guess I, it, it, it's the counter argument that I often hear when I, I bring up this notion. Uh, and it's usually that, well, you know, uh, John Adams said that Thomas Jefferson was a progenitor of mulattoes. It's always been an ugly business and, you know. They'll show me 1890s political cartoons and so on and so forth. What interests me is not the sort of moral evaluation of the content of the discourse, but the form. Uh, And I mean, really, in my mind, that's really the point that, 
postman here hammers home so well that you know it 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 doesn't matter how nice these guys were or how much they weren't nice what matters is the way that you actually conducted politics before the age of television was qualitatively different from the way that you conducted politics after the advent of television and you know it it's that formal change that i find most fascinating about his analysis and i mean i i i first read this book probably 10 years ago and i mean it still strikes me as a pretty compelling argument about the effect of television. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one interesting thing, and this has only gotten worse since this book was written, Postman wanted to have political campaign ads banned from television. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, as someone who doesn't vote, sounds like a pretty great idea to me. <laughs> but you do vote, so I was interested what you think about it. Would you be Would you be happy if they got rid of the campaign ads, or would it just make people even more ignorant of the issues? Oh, I don't think that that television... I don't think that televised political ads actually educate anybody. I think that the aim of those things is to stir up the base. Uh, and, 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 and I say this, I mean, based on studies that I've read, that, I mean, the percentage of people who will cop to having their minds changed by anything on television with regards to politics is just minuscule. But on the other hand, they, they know full well that there are enough people who may or may not vote but who are reliable for one party or the other that it actually does pay you can actually win elections by spending enough money to get them mad enough to go out on tuesday and vote because that's what i was going to ask you because i you know it's, it's been pretty well demonstrated that the candidate who spends the most money wins yeah yeah but but you're saying that's not because people's minds are being changed by these ads at least not if these studies actually bear out, no. And, I mean, I, I tend to think that they're probably right. And, I mean, what what infuriates me is, you know, for instance, I mean, recent Supreme Court decisions, uh, you know, Citizens United is the most famous. You know, it's the one that says that uh, money is speech, so therefore you cannot, you know, prevent anyone from uh, spending as much money as they as they can. And that corporations are people. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other side of it. But really, I mean, that's not the the real damaging part. It's the idea that, uh, you know, people's access to the minds of the public should not be equal, right? Uh, It should be a a scenario where whoever can garner the most dollars should have more influence. I mean, that's the ethical poison of Citizens United. And I mean, I I, I know that I, I... well, I mean, depending on what our listeners say, you all can tell me if I tend to be uh, politically alarmist or politically uh, quietist on this show. But Citizens United really is something that just gets me fighting mad. You and, and Dan, then you and Dan Carlin both. Well, but then I mean, the decision that was handed down several months later that said that a law in Arizona, I believe, was unconstitutional. That you know the state was going to offer matching funds to whichever party raised less money so that they would have, you know, sort of equal footing in the television market. And they said the state is not allowed to do that. So, I mean, basically they enshrined a constitutional right to buy elections. Nice. And I mean, that, and again, I'm about to go inarticulate here, but I mean, that just blows my mind. Not that it it matters that much anyway, because our national parties are controlled by the same corporate interests. They are, they are, but I mean the principle of it, 
And also, I mean, the fact that it shuts down possibilities, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. let's say, you know, on the off chance, you know, that Joe Schreiner, who's my favorite presidential candidate, I've, I've voted for him for each of the last several elections. Uh, let's say that on a long shot, you know, he ends up getting the Green Party nomination. That Supreme Court decision mandates that we as a society are not allowed to give him the same voice that the DNC and GOP have. And again, I like I, I know I, I'm sounding like Dan Carlin here, and Dan Carlin is right on this. He sure so. is. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a whole lot worse people to sound like. Carlin, I would say, is actually an example of what radio can do. You know, I mean, we're talking about how how radio is an ideal way to get your political argument across. Mm-hmm. If if our listeners don't know Dan Carlin, he is. I think he used to think of himself as a libertarian, but I can stand him, so he must not be a libertarian. <laughs> but he has a he has a, a program called Common Sense that that's a podcast, and I I think it it is a great example of what political discourse can do on the radio. It is it is strident and interesting political commentary that is not hateful or shallow in any way. Mm-hmm. So. And, I mean, let me make the Neil Postman move here because, I mean, now that you bring up Dan Carlin, I think Postman might be right about radio too because Common Sense is basically an hour, ten-minute long monologue. Yeah. I mean, that is its form, and yet it has enough listeners that he can make a living off of it. And um, maybe more to the point, he got booted off terrestrial radio. All right, how is that more to the point? I'm curious. Because because of what what happened to terrestrial radio in the in late 80s and 90s. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. That, that he Roll doesn't he it. can't he can't find a home there because, you know, he doesn't fit into whichever category they want him to fit into. Right, right. But, you know, as, as he mentions, uh as often as he can and I, I I don't know, I think he deserves to dance in the end zone a little bit. Uh there are some episodes of his that have higher ratings than CNN. <laughs> which is getting which is getting to be increasingly faint praise well but i, I still like it <laughs> yeah yeah no he's a you know i don't agree with and i'm sure you don't either i don't agree with everything he says i don't agree with probably 60 no, percent no. of what he says but i like him he's, oh yeah he's, yeah he's smart right and i mean to be honest i mean he first of all he's a master of this craft i mean Michael and I both listen to him. I don't know about you, Michael. I listen to him as much to learn how to do podcasts as I do for his content. Absolutely. And his, uh, and his and, history show even more so. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure he doesn't listen to our show, but, I mean, if he did, uh, he might think that we are kissing his behind and he's right, but it's because uh, it's a most worthy behind. My wife has banned him. I don't know how she won't, she won't listen to him. Really? She says he's too angry. He should be. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess one angry white man is all she can take. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Oh shoot. Well, Michael Postman also takes a crack at our own profession, uh, writing a fair bit about the nature of education in an age of print and how the television mucks that up as well. Uh, so take a moment to tell our listeners why Neil Postman hates Ben Affleck as much as he does. Um, you know, I read this book before Argo came out, and uh, as I was thinking about it after looking at your questions, I thought, man, he would hate Argo. He would hate Argo so much. <laughs> um, he hates Ben Affleck because Ben Affleck uh, was involved in a 
supposedly educational television series called The Voyage of the Mimi. Did you watch The Voyage of the Mimi in science class as a kid, Nathan? No, I did not, but my wife still has access to a set of those VHS tapes at school. Oh, well, you got to bring them home and watch them. It's, <laughs> it is as bad as he says it is. It may be worse. Okay. And, and this gets to something he says early on that perhaps uh, surprises some people because he says the problem with TV is not the trash. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the reality TV didn't really exist at the time, but he, that, that's not the problem. You know, the, the problem's right. not cheers. It's not, uh, it's not Dallas. It's what's that? It's not, I love Lucy. It's not Gilligan's Island. It's not stuff that is patently silly. Right. That, that's not, that, that's not his problem. The problem is when television tries to get smart, when television mm-hmm. tries to educate people, there's a joke, um, in, everybody's favorite Disney world attraction, the carousel of progress. Did you ride the carousel of progress when you were down there last year? No, we did not. The kids didn't want to, so we didn't force it. Oh, fair enough. But there's a, there's a joke where, uh, the television has just been invented and the father says, Oh, imagine the possibilities. Millions will learn Latin and Greek sitting in front of their television sets. And then you get, <laughs> you get the equivalent of a smash cut to grandma, uh, watching a boxing match and screaming for him to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's not Postman's problem. In fact, Postman's problem would be if millions were weren't learning Latin and Greek from the television set. Because again, the medium is the metaphor, which means the medium determines how much you're able to learn and how you're able to think. And so, when television tries to educate you, it's actually more pernicious than when it doesn't try to educate you. So, in other words, the History Channel, even the old good History Channel, right. as, as I think about it, reenacted dramas. Yeah, that that's much more dangerous than Gilligan's Island. Mm-hmm. Sesame Street is more dangerous than Gilligan's Island. He seems to think that you'd be better off plopping your kid down in front of Gilligan's Island than Sesame Street about which in a moment. But The Voyage of the Mimi is a – I forget who, who made it, but it was some Hollywood studio creates it uh, in order to teach – middle school science classes and and, Mm -hmm. you know one of the things postman says about it is it's about uh whales i believe but it's it's a narrative it's a more or less a soap opera about this this group of people who goes around on a boat trying to stop whale poachers i think and he says well why would they pick whales not because people need to learn about whales but because whales are photogenic and and mm-hmm. so everything about this televised educational process happens not because it's something they need to learn and television is a good way to do it, but because television is good at doing this, so let's teach them this. And the same could probably go of any um, any televised educational system you want to think about. And, and I, I pick on Sesame Street because I grew up watching it, um, mm-hmm. as I assume you did too, Nathan. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and so, I mean – the problem with Sesame Street is it's built on a televised model, which means it's it's uh, consists of a series of very short sketches that don't have anything to do with each other. And so there's people who actually claim that the reason the American attention span is so short in the 21st century is because we all grew up watching Sesame Street, mm-hmm. which rewards a short attention span. Well, The Voyage right. of the Mimi is something very similar. It, it's I, I remember it being longer form than that. <laughs> but it, it it's the tail wagging the dog. It's it's we're going to teach you what we teach you, not because you need to know what we teach you, but because this is what the medium's good at. So you know, learn about whales. Right, right. Ben Affleck is terrible in it. 
<laughs> I mean, he's he's 12 years old or whatever. The only thing I remember, I remember two things. We watched it years after anybody should have. Uh-huh. We, the only th- I remember two things. There was a deaf woman and somebody was real mean about her being deaf. And he called to her and she couldn't hear him. And and this other woman instead uh, hit the side of the rail with a hammer and the deaf woman looked up. So mm-hmm. I, I guess that teaches us tolerance or whatever. It teaches us how to mm-hmm. communicate with deaf people who aren't looking at us. <laughs> and then number two, I remember uh, Ben Affleck's grandfather got hypothermia, and Affleck had to get naked in a sleeping bag with him to warm him up. Because I, I remember, oh wow, I remember everybody was very grossed out in my se- seventh grade science class <laughs> when we were watching this for some reason. Yeah, yeah, I I didn't know either of those things about the Voyage of the Mimi, so I. <laughs> But it's funny that Affleck has to do with it because he won the Oscar for Argo a couple years ago. And Argo really is a a great example of Hollywood attempting to teach you something. It's not television. It's movies. But they're they're attempting to teach you something, except they screw everything up to make it much more dramatic than it really was and to make it much more like a Hollywood movie than it really was, right? Because in reality, Mm -hmm. the Argo story – is cooked up largely by the Canadian government, but that doesn't that doesn't fit the narrative of of a Hollywood picture. So they they've oh, changed okay. it. They've changed it to where it's the Hollywood studio and the FBI that cook it up. Right, right. And I and and it's interesting because I think that MTV itself sort of underwent this transformation. Right. I mean, you know, at first, I mean, they had that very tongue in cheek shot of you know, the Apollo astronaut hoisting an MTV flag on the moon. Uh, But, I mean, there came a time, as I remember, when MTV just started taking itself very, very seriously as an institution. You know, it was going to be an agent for social change. And, you know, you had, uh, you know, oh, crap, and I'm going to get this wrong, but was it Don Henley at Walden Pond? (laughs) I think, didn't Danny talk about that in in an episode? (laughs) I, I think he did. I yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, I e- even when I was that young, I remember thinking, "Oh my gosh, MTV is taking itself very seriously." Yeah, I didn't have cable when uh-huh. I was a kid, so I've basically never watched MTV. Okay, all right. I, I don't think you're any worse off for it. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't feel like I've missed much. Right, right. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of that certainly. Uh, but then also, I mean, you know, I'm thinking. Uh, Oh, and I'm, I'm I'm trying to think of the event that this was connected. Oh, I remember it was uh, when Freddie Mercury died. Uh, MTV started taking itself very, very seriously as a sort of, you know, AIDS education platform. Uh, and again, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that, you know, years later when I read Postman, it, it kind of made me realize why I thought that was somehow weird and somehow off. Uh, because, you know, again... Yeah, it is a platform that does its best work selling commercials, right? Right. So. Although, you know, it's hard for me to hate Mr. Rogers. It is, it is. And, and you know, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say, I mean, you know, my kids both watch Sesame Street as well. You know, uh, I don't think that uh, I am nearly as dead set against it as Postman is. Uh, but that largely comes from the fact that, you know, you and I, Michael, and the parents of young children right now, at least a lot of us, I won't say all of us, came up in an era of media criticism as an academic discipline. Right. So I think a lot of us have learned to incorporate that medium into a larger system, if you will, so that it's not the standalone thing that, you know, the 
the techno optimists were saying in the carousel of progress that we'll all be learning Greek and Latin from the computer, but rather it becomes one element in a larger system. But, but we can get to that here in a little bit. Um, but as we said in the outset, Michael, Postman is writing this book in the Reagan era, a decade before the World Wide Web becomes a household phenomenon, a couple decades before smartphones become ubiquitous. This is one of those questions I really want to sit on for a little bit because I think that if we're going to consider Amusing Ourselves to Death a genuinely helpful book, uh, some of his ideas should be able to carry forward through those technological changes and inform the way we think about them. And the things that are dated about his book uh, should remain relatively marginal. So I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of evaluation work here. How much of this book is dated? How much of it continues to inform the way that we can think? Take it away where you will. Well, the first thing that has to be said is it's almost adorable that television is the great enemy here because nowadays, (laughs) when's the last time you watch television without your laptop? I mean, when's the last time you paid enough attention to a television show to allow it to warp your mind the way Postman thinks it does? I can't remember. Right. And and so so (laughs) now we're almost nostalgic for the time when you could sit down and watch four hours of television and not do anything else. Because now, even when you're watching television, you're surfing the web. It's just constant. Right. I mean, you if you if you if you don't have your laptop open or your smartphone open, you feel. I don't know. open you you feel bored you feel whatever it's come to the point where i I leave my laptop at school most of the time just so i have one less device to goof around on at home uh um so so again it's hard to see the it's hard to see the television as the great enemy that postman treats it as on the other hand a lot of the things he complains about in television i think apply fairly easily to the internet which Mm -hmm obviously can be a tool for intellectual development. That's what I think we try to do with this podcast, right? We, we yeah, try to follow yeah. his model of radio. But on the right. other hand, the Internet is a place for people with very short attention spans too because everything is hyperlinked, because everything is imagistic, right? I mean, you, you get a website like BuzzFeed. Oh, um, gosh. I, and I don't do BuzzFeed because – BuzzFeed is just like a sentence or two and then a bunch of gifts. And, and, and to mm-hmm. me, that, that is, that's a symptom that's everything wrong, everything that's wrong with my own mind and the minds of other <laughs> people my age. In fact, yeah. I, I spent my spring break reading uh, Terry Eagleton's new book, Culture and the Death of God, and I've underlined this passage I'm going to read. Um, consumers, he says, are passive, diffuse, provisional subjects, which is not quite how the Almighty is traditionally portrayed. As long as men and women are seen as producers, laborers, manufacturers, or self-fashioners, God can never quite expire. Behind every act of production lurks an image of creation, and one act of production in particular, art, rivals that of the Almighty himself. Not even he, however, can survive the advent of man, the eternal consumer. And that's what BuzzFeed is, right? So I, I wrote BuzzFeed as the cemetery of God because, because, <laughs> because BuzzFeed treats you as nothing but a consumer. It, it, is, it is a series of stances for you to pick up and put off at will. Mm-hmm. It's a series of memes, you, you know? And so I think a lot of his postman's, not Eagleton's, criticism of television transfers rather easily over to the internet. Although I think the capacity for the internet to present actual intellectual stuff is much higher than television. So you think of a website like the Stanford 
uh, Encyclopedia of Philosophy, or even mm-hmm. Wikipedia, and, and yeah. you, you've got you've got a, a genuine intellectual project going on that that uh, might have been possible before the internet, but is certainly easier to undertake on the internet. And, and in Absolutely. the case of Wikipedia, yeah. it was not possible before the internet. Right. So on the one hand, things are worse because our attention spans are worse than ever because we never now do one thing and one thing only, even if that thing is as mind-numbing as watching television. But on the other hand, at least the possibility is there for things to be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, a couple things I, I want to pick up on and what you just said. I mean, first of all, yeah, I mean, I think that brainwashing has been replaced by distraction as the great uh, mental poison. Uh, I think you're right that, I mean, and, you know, any of our listeners who teach, I mean, know this well enough that uh, the smartphone uh, is just the absolute worst thing to happen to the classroom. I guess not the absolute worst thing. I shouldn't make absolutes, but it's a bad thing that's happened to the classroom. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's one of those things that basically lets students check out from what, and it's usually not from what I'm saying, it's usually from what their neighbor is saying. Yep. And that's what bugs me the most is that, you know, when a student speaks for more than, you know, the four or five seconds that a television shot lasts, out come the phones and people are farting around with them. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, uh, I know I idealize Socrates more than you do, Michael, uh, but I'm, I'm still going to maintain that, you know, that sort of model of intellectual inquiry where people – exchange ideas in open space really just gets thrown out the window when you've got a room full of iPhones. So, you know, that's certainly one of those things that that resonates with me. The other thing I would say, though, I I think one of the things that makes the Internet a different phenomenon from TV is that TV has a limited range of genres, right? Uh, Even C-SPAN is... doesn't do the same kind of work as, for instance, a podcast, right? Uh, And certainly a a television narrative isn't the same as a flash fiction site, you know, where you can read original science fiction stories and so on and so forth. I mean, the Internet, because of its massive flexibility that, you know, digital packet switching makes possible, uh, is actually not a medium but a vehicle for media, if that makes any sense. Hmm. I don't. I don't know if that's really all that different than television in that respect. All right, so argue it for me. I mean, isn't t- television may not contain as many media, but doesn't it? I mean, the History Channel is in some sense a different medium than MTV, which is a in some sense a different medium than PBS, which is in some sense a different medium than Nickelodeon. Um, I'm going to say that those have different content, but the medium, or maybe I should say the form remains fairly constant. You still have the long, the quick jump cuts, the short scenes, the commercial breaks, so on and so forth. I mean, C-SPAN, C-SPAN is that weird exception. And yeah, TCM and the movie channels certainly venture for that. But I didn't say a single medium. I said a narrower range of media. All right, right? fair enough. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, uh, as we know, because I mean, I'm certainly, I'm certain you use it as much as I do, you know, the internet if we can even call it a singular thing, uh, does contain things like long-form political monologues like Dan Carlin's. It has archived classical texts like the the uh, Internet Classics Archive. It has, you know, 
just this vast, vast array of different media that require different spans of attention that do different things, right? I mean, w- would you agree with that much? No, I would. I, I okay. see what you're saying. So, I mean, it, it's interesting. And I mean, I, I want to point to a book that I, I read here recently, and it's one that took me off guard because I usually don't hold this writer in that high regard. Uh, but I found a copy of his book for free on a library giveaway cart. <laughs> so I picked it up and started reading it. But it's Al Gore's book, of all people, uh, The Assault on Reason. And the, the argument that he makes, I mean, it's really a smart little book. Uh, he says that, you know, well, first of all, a little bit of background. There are few people who hated Al Gore before he was the vice president more than Neil Postman did. And it's for the precise reasons that Saturday Night Live made fun of him because he was such an early and vocal advocate of the Internet. And Postman, you know, basically thought the Internet was going to be television, but more so. But in this little book, Assault on Reason, Al Gore makes the argument that uh, political discourse has actually become more accessible to more people on the Internet precisely because the means of production of content have become diffuse. Uh-huh. And therefore, I mean, if you have the will and a little bit of know-how and, you know, a few dollars, and really it's not that many dollars, you can actually produce your own political content that rivals, you know, what AM radio can put out there in terms of professionalism of production. That is true. And he says that, you know, with, with YouTube, cause he wrote this book, you know, in the middle of the George W. Bush years, uh, it's even getting to the point where someone could, if they were inclined, produce political content on video that rivals the cable news networks. Now, I don't know if that's true just because I'm not a huge YouTube person. Uh, but no, I mean, no, they the could, ar- they could. The I mean, argument you, makes you sense would, to you me. Would, you would need a little bit of financial backing there, I think. Yeah, yeah. But that I think that's that's largely true. I don't think it costs that much to do political content on on the level of the of the twenty four hour news networks. Right, right. And I and I think of a small outfit like Democracy Now. I don't know if you're familiar with them at all, but I mean, as a a definite low budget competitor to the big boys, and they don't have you know the kind of uh, viewership that Fox News does. Uh, but you know, when there's fifty seven channels and nothing on. Even a sliver of the market can be significant, right? The the problem is you you actually run. I, I agree with you that the the kind of inherent democracy of the internet is a good thing, and mm-hmm. you know I'm all for net neutrality. Let's let's keep this out of the hands of the corporations that run every other aspect of our lives. Yeah. But on the other hand, you end up with the opposite problem, right? You end up with the internet as absolute chaos, where mm-hmm. where. Well, let me put it this way: the. Uh, the ridiculous anti-vaccination movement never could have existed to the extent it does before the internet. Okay. Because unless you were an expert, which none of us are in everything and most of us aren't in anything, Mm -hmm. you are not capable of telling something that looks, two things that look good, one being true and one being false from each other. Right. So, so, Jenny McCarthy says that she doesn't – she has a, a PhD from the University of Google. Ah, but where did she say that? She said that on Oprah's show on television. I, I, didn't, say tele, I didn't say television was that much better about it. Oh, OK, OK. But, but, but what I said was that the, the, uh-huh. internet allows, the internet allows fringe movements that are fringe for a reason to seem like they're not fringe. 
Okay, okay, that I can agree with. That I can agree with. Not that television is the solution. Not that the printing <laughs> press is the solution, because there must have been a similar situation in 18th century America, right? Because there were uh, there were enough printing presses where there must have been nut jobs publishing stuff. But it couldn't possibly have been on the level that it is on the internet, where anybody in the world can sign up for a WordPress account and make something that at least looks professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can agree with that. I can agree with it's that. The, it's the Pharmacon, right? It's the great glory and the great shame of the internet. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, your wonderful Democracy Now! video is going to bump right up against Slash Fiction from My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. <laughs> and, and, and so I think there has to be a, a, a certain lack of seriousness to, to discourse on the internet, too. Uh, and mm-hmm. I say this as someone who, whose role on this program is generally to make things less serious. Yeah, yeah, but I guess I guess my thing is, I mean, the the strong bright line between serious discourse and, you know, silly discourse uh isn't near as strong in the age of the internet as it was in the age of I guess television hegemony, if you will, right? So I mean, if you found a pamphlet on uh, oh, I can't even think of a good example here, you know, on uh, conspiracies about fluorinated drinking water. I'll go to Dr. Strangelove. Why not? Uh, you know, at a flea market in 1978, I mean, it was definitely, you know, someplace that nobody's going to take all that seriously, right? Now, I, I think that that's good in that respect, but what's not as good is that large, powerful, wealthy entities have vehicles for information transfer that give them a facade of respectability that they probably don't deserve. Right. So it's one of those things where, again, I I think that your aristocratic tendencies and my democratic tendencies are going to come out at odds on this. I'd I'd rather it be a battle royale and let the most persuasive ideas come out on top, even if they're dumb sometimes. Whereas, I mean, the sense that I get is that you're not nearly as charmed with that model. No, and, you know, the outbreak of measles in the Pacific Northwest right now is enough to make me not as charmed with that model. Fair enough, fair enough. But on the other hand, I agree with you. I mean, obviously, we are able we, – we would not have been able to do this show 20 years ago. We never no, – we, we no. would never be able to get a, a radio station to pick it up, much less have the kind of international, frankly, audience that we have for it. So yes. I, I recognize there are – European listeners, we love you. There are, there are wonderful things about the internet, and I'm obviously glad that it exists. And I think in some ways it is a real improvement over television. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I, you know, I just, I just worry. But as you said, I'm I, I I have a more aristocratic tendency, and you have a more populist tendency. Right, right, and also, I mean, in mythological terms, I'm I'm the sort of dude who says, you know, let's throw open Pandora's box and kick it out onto the floor because eventually hope comes out. Yeah, but hope is a bad thing in that myth. <laughs> <laughs> You're Ernie, and I'm Bert to, to put things in. <laughs> I just, want, I, just want to be, I just want to be left alone with my gym clip collection. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very nice. Very nice. Well, Michael, we have kept things relatively open in this episode, as we tend to do in two-person episodes. But I've been asking the big set-piece questions. As we head towards the door here, what question do you see emerging from this book that our listeners would benefit from hearing? I think the the 
overwhelming question behind what I take to be all of Postman's work and what I take to be the entire field he works in, um, media ecology, as it's sometimes called, is a question that's worth worth asking. What is the price of this technological advance? It's a question we've asked many times on this podcast. What? Because mm-hmm. you you gain something obviously from every every what McLuhan calls every extension of man, right? Every piece of technology allows us to do something we would not be able to do otherwise. Google allows us to essentially upload our memory to the internet. Mm-hmm. But what do you lose? What what gets lost? And so television entertains us. The internet teaches us things. It entertains us. What are we losing when we when we surrender ourselves over to it? And is there a way to walk the line? Is there a way to hold on to some of the good things that we would otherwise abandon? But the problem is, modern technology, or modern society, excuse me, tends to jump headfirst into technological advances without asking that question. And so however you feel about Postman in the end, I think we can all agree that he at least asked a question that otherwise would not be asked. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so so that that's what I think the, the big takeaway here is. What is it costing us to get the things we get? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, before I, I read that uh, Assault on Reason, I never would have – imagine myself saying I tend to side with Al Gore against Neil Postman here. Uh, but uh, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, Neil Postman's big contribution here is to put these questions to the public. Uh, I think that, you know, Al Gore does so in, I mean, more of a sort of wild West democratic spirit that I'm more inclined to follow. Uh, but I can all, I, I can certainly understand the sort of, you know, pharmacon anxiety that that is the other side of that coin. So, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you know, he is a question asker, and I mean, that's his great contribution. One of the things I, I can't remember if he does it in this book. One of the things I, I I sort of you know looked at this book very very rapidly preparing for this episode. So I'm not sure which ideas I'm pulling for this one and which ones I'm pulling from his other books. But I know that in his book Technopoly, which is another fine book of his, uh, he actually goes to uh, Christopher Marlowe and says that every new technology is a Faustian bargain. Uh, you're going to get, you know, 24 years of some sort of great and mighty power, but you might be trading your soul for it. Makes sense to me. So there you go. Um, well, Michael, I, first of all, you know, thank you for, uh, taking on a point one episode. I know that neither of us are as strong there as when we've got Danny or David, uh, sort of, you know, playing, uh, third base for us. It would be interesting to think about how they would respond to this conversation. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I, you know, uh, David and Danny, if you actually listen to this, feel free to comment on the blog or, you know, chime in on Facebook or David, I guess you can berate us the next time we record. Uh, but, Starting next week, uh, we're going to start introducing you to some new voices on this podcast uh, that are soon going to become voices of their own, which is to say they're going to get their own podcast. Uh, Michael, how are we going to lead off that little series? I think David is going to be hosting the episode because I did last week. So I'm yeah. hoping David's going to be hosting the episode. Um, and it'll be a interview with Dan Dawson, who you may remember from three, four years ago, he, he was on our, one of our yeah, early summer of 2010. Yeah. An episode about science. Well, um, he is a meteorologist 
and David will be interviewing him with you and I sitting on about meteorology, and this will be all in preparation for our new Book of Nature Science and Math podcast, which I guess, I don't know when that'll start, probably in the fall. Oh, uh, that's a, that that's sort of under negotiation still. My sense is that's probably when it'll get rolling. But yeah, that'll be our first. We're, we'll be doing three interviews with the three hosts, and the first will be Dan Dawson, the meteorologist. So, uh, as you recall, last time he came on the podcast, I asked him if there was something we could shoot into a tornado to make it stop being a tornado, and everybody laughed at me for what felt like fifteen <laughs> minutes. So I'm interested to see what stupid thing I'll say this week. Yeah, I remember that well. I remember it well. So listeners, look forward to that, and in the meantime, while you wait for that episode, uh, go to iTunes, give us a review, give us some stars, that's how we get new listeners. Uh, people who are looking for Christian intellectual content often find it there. You can find us on christianhumanist.org as well. You can leave comments on the show notes, comments on blog posts, so on and so forth. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can go to our Facebook page. Uh, all of these ways uh, not only make us feel good, because after all, we have fragile egos, but they also bring other people into the show, and this is a lot more fun the more voices we hear from. So uh, until next week, this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Michael Farmer and the absent but doctoral David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. But I-